welcome to a special From the Archives edition of The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I'm Michael Lodmark, one of the show's producers. In addition to our weekly series, which presents in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers, once a month we share a favorite selection from our archives, spanning more than 40 years of the New York Film Festival, Chaplin Award Gala, and other series, retrospectives, and special events. On today's episode, we're featuring an illuminating conversation with David Fincher from the 48th New York Film Festival back in 2010. His film, The Social Network, opened the festival, and the morning after its world premiere, the director joined film critic Todd McCarthy on stage for one of our HBO director's dialogues. Their in-depth discussion traced the entirety of Fincher's impressive career, from his beginnings as a special effects supervisor at Industrial Light and Magic, to his work directing commercials and music videos, to his rise to fame as one of Hollywood's most distinctive auteurs. For more than a decade, we have teamed with HBO to present conversations like this one during NYFF. Coming up at the festival's 53rd edition, we'll be welcoming Ho Shao Shen, Jia Zhang Ke, Todd Haynes, and Michael Moore to the stage for wide-ranging discussions of their illustrious careers. For more information about the 53rd New York Film Festival, visit filmlink.org NYFF. Now, let's go to David Fincher in conversation with Todd McCarthy at the 48th New York Film Festival in 2010. Didn't trip, which yeah. is good. Started off well. I'm just curious before we start, how many of you have seen Social Network? Oh, so a lot. Wow. Okay, that's great. You could just get a few more. <laughs> well, we're not uh, just going to talk about that. I w we will open it up for questions from the audience in a, in a little bit. Um, David, just congratulations. You just keep making Thank you. one film after another that. Is, is so fantastic. And that are speaks, different. Yeah, and different. You know, you, you keep pushing and pushing in, in unexpected directions. It's just, it's very exciting to see. Thank you. What, um, just, the film hasn't even opened yet. Of course, the public just saw it last night for the first time, but what's already happening kind of in the viral world and, and with reactions and the people who are, the film are about and the things you're hearing, and it just, it must be sparking a lot of unpredictable uh, events and reactions already what, what's going on well out there's there? definitely you know there's a, there's a lot of stuff happening on the internet because of course it's a movie sort of about that world I mean the, the, the movie you know is ho hopefully about bigger things than than technology but certainly it's um, um, but you know you there are a lot of non-denial denials a lot of you know very fervent denials and 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 you know, we expected that, and and there are people who are really championing the movie and really like it, and there are other people who, you know, take issue with it being slight or whatever. But movies are movies, and and they're not decided in the first week, and they're not decided in the first weekend. They're, you know, takes, you know, five six years to really tell about whether or not you made something that was worth talking about. Well, people will be talking about this, that's for sure, for a long time. It's just, it's, it's a film that speaks so much of what's going on today, and, uh, and it's just so damn entertaining and, uh, and riveting from the, from the, out, from the outset. Um, you know, 24 hours ago, we were up here with uh, the rest of your collaborators and the actors, and I'm just wondering, at that mo yesterday we found out that neither Jesse nor Andrew had seen the film. Did they actually yeah. see it last night? Yeah, they saw it last night. We, we, um, 
we screwed their feet to the floor and made them kind of, because I, I think it's kind of, unf I mean, it's a perfect opportunity to see a movie for the first time with a thousand people. And, you know, it's also a, a room that, you know, I think you could, you know, New York Film Festival, you're, you're going to get people who are appreciative. You know, it's not, it's not going to be clay pigeons. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Jesse was what seemed very happy. But he's a great actor, so you never know. <laughs> and Andrew, I couldn't find. I couldn't find Andrew. He, he disappeared into the night somewhere. No, some actors are, are like that. They have trouble watching themselves on the screen. And I get that. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I mean I'll probably someday pay somebody to destroy these tapes. But, but I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible um, way to make a living, you know. I mean, it's, I mean, there's great perks that come with it, and, and it's not, that tough on you, but the, you know, in terms of the hours and stuff. But uh, but the incredible, um, you know, giving up of uh, control to somebody else or to so many other people. Um, has anybody here seen the um, Casey Affleck's Joaquin Phoenix movie? Okay, you know, I mean, I think his rant at the beginning of that movie is really kind of true. It's like, you know, it's it's. A lot, I think for actors, there is revelation and there is digging deep and there is you know um, flaying oneself for the for the camera but there's also you know a lot of it is kind of a trained dog thing it's like you know and sit and stay and you know I mean and so I I think it's not it's not that it's an incredibly physically taxing thing but it's a incredibly uh, emotionally and intellectually taxing and at a certain point there's a lot of you know, technical stuff that kind of gets in the way. And then you have to just deal with, you know, God, I wish I got that laser removed or whatever, you know, that, that kind of stuff that you have to deal with. Well, from your point of view now, you're really at the top of your, your profession now and the top of your game and you, you, keep, you keep pushing it. Uh, but right now uh, in this profession, what are the greatest satisfactions you find in your work? And conversely, what are the greatest frustrations or uncertainties or fears in the in uh, what's it what's it like to be in your position right now in the industry, and uh, what do you uh, how do you balance that in your work? Um, wow, um, I've sort of been um, you know my life has been kind of tailored and I've kind of been built for middle age. You know I, I spent most of my teens w w working you know six day weeks and fourteen hour days that you know either industrial light magic or making television commercials and you know, kind of struggling uh, through my 20s to, you know, be able to be taken seriously. You know, I remember when I first, my, the first music video I ever made, it, and I made it in San Francisco, and I made it with the local technicians that I knew that I'd sort of come up with and guys that, and, you know, you sort of call your friends and you get everything together. And it was a pretty big budget. And, and I remember turning to the first assistant cameraman and saying, I want to be like right about here. And I want to be like on a 24 millimeter and I want to track across. And he looked at me, and he, he was about 40 and he looked at me and he said, really? And I, and I remember just going, <laughs> you know, cause I was 21 or 20, maybe 19 years old, 19. I don't remember. And and I remember just going, fuck. Like I I just want to be in a 24, right? Like I don't I don't want to negotiate with you. I I want to like I went out and got $150,000 to make a video and I'm hiring you and now you're and and so I spent a good, you know, 10 or 15 years trying to kind of get past that 
point I wanted to be able to be a point where I I could go here's what I want and because that's by getting those things there everybody thinks you know it's all about getting the stuff there but getting the stuff there is just to be that's just the starting gate you know it's making everything work after that point you know I um, so when you when you go when you go to a crew you turn to 90 people you know and and you have all these faces sort of looking at you like what do you want to do next um, which is a terrifying thing because you have to have whether you whether it's for real or whether it's fake you have to have confidence because um, human beings are they don't be led by somebody who's like oh god I don't know um, what do you guys think you know they they want somebody who's going to definitively say here's what we're going to do and this is going to be righteous and god fearing and th that's the way it has to be and and so it takes you 10 or 15 years to get comfortable enough to just go dude it's my way of the highway you know you you have to you have to be able to do that and and so i've spent i mean it's probably it wasn't until i was 40 that i could kind of go here's what we're doing here's exactly what we're doing here's all i want and 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 mean it and people would sort of go right away and so the last eight years have been you know figuring out how to um make the process efficient for the areas of it that i like that i enjoy i know that i have to go on tech scouts and i know that i have to walk into a room and, and discuss for people where the light's going to come from and what the intent of the scene is and how basically it's going to be constructed. But then the part that's interesting to me is the part when you go, when you have it all set up and there are people playing dress up in front of the camera and getting that thing to work. And that's, that's the interesting part, that's the fun part, and that's, that's the entree. You know, everything else is is foreplay and appetizer it's like that's the thing you got to get that's what it's all about that's what you're spending the dough on and so um so in the past eight years i've kind of been able to um i guess make the process work for me a little bit better make it work for me a little bit more um so that i my energy is spent on the shooting of the minimal amount of takes that it requires to complete a setup. Well, you've been working up to it. It's great because you're, you're, you're feeling that, that you finally achieved this position where you can do that. So many of the, really the great directors, uh, well, the area when you were just getting involved in the, in the 70s, and uh, late so peaked with their first one or two or three films. And from then on, it was a, kind of a downhill slope. And just, there is a, a, a need to fight that complacency, I would think, that uh, settles in if you, with the money and the attention and the, and the approval and all that. Well, uh, I think, you know, the, the good news is I haven't been ridiculously successful. Um, and, and I haven't made the kind of money that would... No, but I mean, you know, if you make Jaws, you know, you get to decide where the sun rises. You know, you get to kind of go, <laughs> over there would be good, you know. <laughs> And and that's a different thing, you know. Wh wh when you know, um, you know, w w it, it's a, it's all a process. You know, you're 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 hopefully the making of the movie is the process. The getting the movie funded is a process. The getting the script right is a process. The putting five movies together. You know, I'm happy with. You know, I feel like I'm. You know, to me, it's like you want to put two together back to back, or you want to do three in a row, or you want to do you know that are 
different and successful on their own terms and and interesting and and uh you know god you want to learn from them you want to not i don't want to be an applied scientist you know i i you know when people say oh well you're just going to take that and make it all moody you know that that's when i just no that's not the intention the intention is to do something a little bit different well going way back when when you were a little boy what did you want to be when you grow up and i wanted to be a movie director I wanted Seriously? To be, yeah, I, mean, I was eight from years what, old. From what age? No, I was eight years old. I, I, was eight. I walked out of, I walked out of the Rafael Theater on Fourth Street in San Rafael, and I just seen um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and I walked out and I got in my dad's '65 Impala, and I slid over these gigantic seats in front of this steel dashboard, and he said, "What did you think?" Because he loved the movie, and I said, it, "It was amazing," and he said, "So." What do you think about it? You know, what do you, and I said, I want to make movies. And he was like, great. And we drove home and, and literally from that, from 19, this was, well, this is 69. So it was fall of 69. From that point on, my entire life has been, I mean, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, I took film classes and in high school, I couldn't take film. So I worked in a movie theater and I worked at a local television station shooting ENG stuff. I did plays, you know, built sets, did lighting, and basically just said, you know, however I have to cobble, took photography, um, and kind of cobbled a curriculum. What do you think it was about Butch Cassidy that well, it's did a, it for you? Yeah, it was, it was the transportive, I guess it was, well, it was quite specifically, I'd seen a documentary on the making of it, and, and I'd seen it before I saw the movie. And it's kind of a great documentary. It's it's narrated by George Roy Hill. It's actually on one of the special edition DVDs. You know, they only make like eight of those for every movie, so it's hard to keep up. But but it had a it had a the, there was a documentary that was on CBS and and or NBC. But it was um, it was all the behind the scenes stuff. It was narrated by George Roy Hill, who had this great kind of pragmatic voice of this is why we did what we did and this is why I cast these people and here's what I like about them and. And I sort of thought, I guess it was the, the fact that it illuminated for me that movies didn't happen in real time. It was like, I thought, I always thought if the movie was two hours long, it probably took, I mean, you know, three, four days to shoot that thing, you know? <laughs> I thought, I, I, because that was stupid, I was eight. And, um, and so I, uh, it, it, so it was the first time that I realized that, my God, there's like, they're shipping all these horses to, you know, Wyoming and shooting that shot. And then they're going to, you know, Arizona to get that shot. And I, it, it was the first time it had ever occurred to me that there was this incredible circus and, and all of this time and thought and preparation. I thought, that sounds like a gigantic waste of time. Sign me up. No, so I, I just... A quick aside, George Roy Hill was the first director I ever interviewed, and it's when he came to San Francisco to promote Butch Cassidy, and he flew in on his own plane. That's what impressed me so he, much. He yeah, flew he in, he landed at San Francisco airport, he came up to the Fairmont, and we did the interview and talked for two hours, and I was so impressed with this guy. I mean, he was so smart. <laughs> yeah, and he was really a little smart. sarcastic, and he was, yeah. but it really, uh, you know, he made popular films, but uh, really, really had uh, extra dimensions. Yeah, yeah. Every morning before he went to work, he played Bach for about 20 minutes yeah, just to compose penis. himself yeah. and be focused. And then yeah, I mean, and you look at the movies, and they're all, um, you know, Slapshot, Sting, Butch Cassidy, 
Slaughterhouse Five, you know, they're all they're uh Wobble Pepper. Uh World According to Garp, they're all they're great. He was he was solid. Yeah. Did you have any other artistic inclinations? I mean, did you draw? Did you write yeah, stories? What else did you do? My dad was a car cartoonist for a while when he was he was young and so he taught me how to draw and I pretty much drew I mean, I would sit in my room f when from f f about four years old on. I mean, I could sit in my room for, in my bedroom for 10 hours and draw. And my parents would be like, he's drawing. What did you draw? What kind of stuff? Was everything, it perverse, man. Like, you know, violent yeah. action stuff or what? Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's that whole thing where you're sitting there as a kid and, you know, you're kind of hunched over and going. <laughs> you know, you drew like planes and. Strata Fortress, you know. Because I know a lot of drawers, Spielberg and Lucas were big drawers, and uh, a lot of people did that uh, at that yeah, age. Yeah, I mean, I guess it com it, com it kind of comes with the, you you have to think in terms of, uh, you, you're thinking in terms of three dimensions as you're staging stuff, but all, ultimately you're m reducing everything down to two dimensions. So you're, so you're, I mean, you have to kind of think in terms of, you the edge of the space that you have. So I think it probably helps in some way. Did you have a, a lot of like-minded friends or were you a loner? No, I mean, I, I mean, this is Marin County, this is San Anselmo, um, Marin County Bay Area, San Francisco. In the, between like 19, I moved there in 65. My parents moved there in 65 and I left in 76. So you're talking about THX 1138 was made at the Marin County Civic Center. The Godfather was shot on Shady Lane and 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 Ross. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I mean, all the pre-production for uh, the Candidate. Uh, uh, most of Downhill Racer was at least you know kind of prepped and edited out of the Bay Area. Um, um, uh, the conversation. I mean, all these movies were being made. You know, Phil Kaufman. I, he did Body Snatchers, and I yeah. think he did one other film in San Francisco. I can't remember what it was. But but it was a real burgeoning. I mean, everyone on my block wanted to be a director. I mean, George Lucas was my neighbor, so it was kind of like you were going. You know, I remember a story I, I, ha I have to tell because it, it's it's sort of indicative of um, this time in this place. There was a rock that was this, um, had this sort of promenade that looked out over my friend Scott Kittleman, my, my next door neighbor, who was Lucas's house, and then was Scott's, and then there was this little promenade, and then there was our house. And, um, and my friend Chris and my friend Scott, we were 12. Yeah, I guess we were like 12 or 13 years old. Must have been. And we're sitting on this rock, and we're looking out over this hedge, and you can see Lucas's house. And it's this giant white house, Victorian. Very beautiful. Giant grounds, pool, and poplar trees and stuff. And we're sitting there, and we're looking. And, and I turned to my friend Scott, who, you know, knew Lucas's, the Lucas's pretty well, Marsha. And he, I said, so what's George up to? What's he doing? These are like, we're 13 years old. And, I, and he says, well, he's off in London doing uh, this movie, this, The Star Wars, because it was called The Star Wars at the time. And I said, really? Always drop the the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when in doubt. And my friend Chris turns and he goes, really? Science fiction? Didn't he learn his lesson with THX 1138? <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought, so awesome, you know? Had, had, had we been able to blog. Um, <laughs>
just in the whole mix of this, uh, when did you first see 2001, and what was your reaction to that? Um, I was about seven. Seven? Oh, yeah, my dad took me to, my, my, my father was a, uh, uh, loved movies. I mean, lived, um, spent an inordinate amount of his youth in, in movie theaters. Had a very unhappy um, childhood and spent a lot of time sort of away from dysfunction by going to the movie theater. And um, so he loved movies and he used to, but, and, and we had a, I mean, on the weekends, you know, time away f for us, you know, was not, we didn't go and play baseball. We would go to the movies and he would say, oh, you got to see this. You haven't seen Rear Window? I was like, dad, I'm four. And so, I, <laughs> you know, well, fuck, we got to go, you know, so. <laughs> So um, he took me, I was about seven years old, and he had seen, and he took me to a double feature in, in, in San Francisco. And it was a, you know, it was a big 70 millimeter, it was a double feature with Yellow Submarine and 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it was awesome. And I was seven, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this thing, and I'm going, you know. You got, you know, contact highs just by being in that theater? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, I mean, it's San Francisco in the 60s, yeah. so it was, so, um, so, you know, the first movie, I'm like, we all live in a yellow submarine, you know, it's great. And then all of a sudden the second movie starts and it's 20 minutes, no one's talking. And I, you know, it's just monkeys. And I turned to him and I said, you know, dad, no one's talking. And he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, that's the point. And I said, oh, okay, fine. It's the point that no one's talking. But um, I remember, you know, having my mind fairly blown, just kind of, um, because again, you, as a child, you look at stuff and you sort of think, they're trying to, I mean, they're preparing me for something. Like, they're preparing me for the future. Like, I remember watching that film and going, okay, I have to be prepared for space travel. And then I have to, because most of what, when you're a kid, you know, when you're a student in school, they're showing you movies or whatever. It's like preparing you for, you know, dissection or whatever. This is how to dissect frogs or here's what human reproduction is or whatever. They're preparing you for stuff. So I remember watching this movie and going, I'm being prepared for space travel and kind of going, wow. And then it got to the end and I was like, I'm being prepared for the afterlife. Like, <laughs> I don't know that I need this at seven, yeah. but, you know. I took my son to see it in 72 weeks ago, and uh, he didn't quite know what to make of it either. But then every day since then, I've driving him to school, he insists that I put the CD of the Strauss Zarathustra yeah, yeah. on. He listens to it five times before going to school. And he says it's the only thing that calms him down. Well, you should, and now you should really fuck with him and just play the Alex North soundtrack that was never used for 2001. See if that He knows him. about that. Does he? Yeah. <laughs> um, so. What was your first break? How did you, what was your, your first lucky moment that got you towards the, on the path you wanted to be on? I, um, I had a, oh God, I've had so many lucky breaks. Um, I you guess start, it, where you start working tech stuff first up in San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. Well, I, I worked in a dark room. I, I, I started working for John Cordy, who was a Bay Area filmmaker, had a, had a big Victorian house in Mill Valley and was making this animated cutout feature that George Lucas was funding and the Ladd Company was funding. This is in 1980. I was just out of high school and I'd gone to a um, sort of summer school film program and found it um, 
you know, those who can't teach, teach gym, and those who can't teach gym, teach film. And, and, and those who can't teach film, we're teaching this summer program. And, and, and so I, um, so I remember being kind of disillusioned and just going, this is just bullshit. And, and a friend of mine who had been through this program had gotten a job work for Cordy and, and was, and was in the dark room and we were, they were making trans lights. And I don't know if anybody knows what trans lights are. It's like a, it's like a see-through kind of semi-translucent roll of, of photographic paper, but you can, but it's like vellum. It's like, and it's impregnated with, um, with, and it was, they were black and white, but they were unbelievably expensive. Like, you know, a, a, it was a 60 inch roll or something and, you know, you'd roll it out and it could, you know, how to do it in the dark and cut it and put it up on the wall and project. And sometimes there were, you know, three, four, five minute exposures that you would have to dodge and burn. And I mean, it was really, really, it was big technical, like photographic stuff. And it was, I liked it, you know, it was fun. I did a lot of that in high school and I, and I liked working a lot, but it's, you know, really stinky chemicals in the dark all day long. And if you can't make a mistake because the, the, you're working with a print medium that's, you roll out a 60 inch piece of the stuff and cut it off. It's four feet or five feet and you make a, a five foot <laughs> blow up, you know, it's a couple thousand dollars. So if you, if you fuck it up, you're in trouble. So it's really meticulous stuff. And I, and I enjoyed it when I first started and, and I could see my friend Paul, he got me this job doing this because he desperately did not want to be doing it anymore. He was like, Oh God, thank God. Get, let me do anything other than this. Let me find somebody to come in and take over for me. And, um, so I did that for about six months, seven months, and then I moved into the animation department, mostly just moving boxes and being a PA. And that was really my first, um, that was my first gig, you know, where I was actually making, you know, $3.75 an hour or something, working in the movie business. But then what about beyond that? Didn't you work, you worked on some uh, ILM or something? Yeah, I got a job, my, uh, my roommate was, uh, worked in the, was a, uh, uh, camera assistant in the mad department at ILM and then they w needed somebody to do stage stuff and and at the time I was working on I was helping do the visual I was helping the visual effects department it was run by a guy that I worked for in the in the in the dark room and he had this idea there was a sequence in the movie where I had to kind of fly where characters had to fly through live action traffic and so I had this idea that I would take a steady cam and I was going to try to gyro stabilize it or something and, and I could do this flying plate and I could shoot this um, at like three or four or five frames a second. So I was trying to rent the equipment in San Francisco to, to test this. So I went looking for steady cam and I found that all the steady cams had been rented and were up at ILM. And so I said, well, when, so I called my friend who worked in the math department there and I said, you know, we find out when they're going to be done with them because I want to run because I have this idea to do this, this um, undercrank Steadicam stuff. He said, who told you about that? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, who told you about the undercrank Steadicam stuff? I said, no one. I just had an idea that I needed to solve it. He's like, I can't talk to you, man. I got to call you back. So... <laughs> I get a call about an hour later, and it's Dennis Murin, and Dennis Murin goes, who told you about the Endocrank Steadicam stuff? 
And I said, well, I don't know. So they were working on the speeder bikes um, for Return of the Jedi. And they were working on this thing at the, at the same time. And so I kind of came up on their radar as this like pain in the ass across the, in Mill Valley, working on that weird hippie movie. But somebody was talking to him. And I put, you know, this guy, I put my friend, my roommate, in really bad position because everybody thought he was like divulging trade secrets. So they had an opening and I got a call from, and Craig put me up for it, said, you know, you should talk to Dennis Murin about this and you could come. And I was a, you know, meter jockey just shooting green, you know, blue screen uh, chicken walkers. I shot chicken walkers. And I got to work with my heroes at the time. You know, I got to work with Phil Tippett and Tom Santamon and Joe Johnston, and Dennis Murin and, and uh, so, I mean, you were inhabiting this very techie world at yeah. that point. I did, did, did you see a kinship uh, when you read Social Network, his little group of... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, um, no. Um, not so much in that. You know, with the, I, I kind of, in my mind, they were sort of more like film nerds. You know what I mean? They were sort of more like... Um, the guy, you know, when I first moved to L.A., um, I sort of fell in with this crowd of, of guys who were all e UCLA grads, UCLA film school grads who were making their own movies and, and, and they had this, this house that they called the Pad of Guys or the Pad of Guys and uh, Shane Black and Fred Decker and Greg Pruss and, and they um, were working on scripts and it was mostly, it was that sort of, it was that frat, that, that frat house kind of like you know, you, you go over there and, you know, you go over there on Saturday night and they would show two or three movies in a row and everybody get blasted and, and bag on the movies and everybody had their own, like, kind of, it was like the, it was the lowest, you know, kind of nerd form of the Cahiers de Cinema. It was like these, you know, everybody had an opinion. They were all really, really strong opinions and the fights would break out and people would be like, St. Elmo's Fire is great. And be like, fuck you. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. So that kind of stuff. But when you moved to L.A., did you have a specific ambition? Or did you come down there to make a movie? Did you ever think I, you were going to make like a low-budget Roger Corman movie uh, no. or something like that? <laughs> no. Um, I, uh, no, I came to L.A. to make, I came to L.A. hopefully to make movies, but, but to make television commercials. And I, I, I'd been working on ILM. I'd done um, this American Cancer Society commercial on the weekends at this, and it had, you know, did it for like $8,000 and it made, made, you know, been banned on three networks. And so all of a sudden I was like interesting to people and I did a music video and I came to LA to make music videos and, and I did that for a while. But, um, but the whole idea, I mean, music videos for me was like, you know, film school. It was like somebody was going to pay for, pay for, to play. They were going to pay me to play. Well, what was it like for you that when you started making music videos and you suddenly were collaborating with Madonna or the Rolling Stones or you know these giant you know cultural musical figures? What what would the interaction be in creating the music video with someone like that? Um, well, I actually love. I mean, I, I don't know what music videos are like now, but at that time they were. It was kind of amazing and great because the, you know, it was like the movie star and the head of the studio were the same people so you were you were always aligned you know what I mean it's not like you were it, it's not like you had to 
you know, you didn't have to go talk to Brad Gray and then go back and deliver the bad news to Tom Cruise. You know, you, di you, you didn't, you weren't, it was like, it was their money. And, and so it was a very direct relationship. And I think one of the things that I learned um, distinctly was people who become ridiculously famous usually have a pretty good idea of what they're good at, you know, and they know kind of what their, they know what their best side is, they know how to, they're, they're, and, and if you could augment that and you could work with them to find a new facet to it, which I always looked at as sort of that was my job, was not only, you know, to, you know, you, want, you had a song, right, they gave you a song and you would listen to the song and you come up with an idea and then you would go and you'd sit with them and you would say, here's sort of what I want to do. And they would say, yeah, I like that, but uh, you know, I'm a little, you know, I don't like, I don't want it to have too much story and then I'm not really an actor. I really just want to sing and I want to get out early and I want to be done by three and I'm gonna, you know, so you have that whole, you know, all the kind of movie star negotiation is happening at the level of the person who's financing it. So, so it's a very direct kind of, you know, you learned a really, um, you learned how to seduce your financier. You know, you could say, look, you know, and, and I got, I got a, you know, I was, I wasn't tough, but I, I, I was pretty, it, to me it was very simple. It was like either we agree on what it is we're gonna do or we don't, but it's not gonna be like, I'm not gonna trick you into doing something you don't wanna do, which has served me well. I, 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 my whole thing has always been in dealing with anybody who's going to finance something is, let me tell you the bad news up front. Here's, it's going to be expensive. It's going to take a long time. Like on social network, you know, this is, a, I'm, this is not a little movie that could, you know, it's not like people, it's not like people didn't appreciate the script. Like the studio read it and said, we love this. If you will make this, we'll be so happy. Now, it was a bunch of 20, five-year-olds in a kind of weird little outsider tale of, of um, you know, it wasn't really the tech story. It was really kind of whether or not the actors worked and the emotion of it worked. That was the only hope that we had that people would be interested in the, in the movie. So it wasn't like they said, hey, spend what you want, you know. It doesn't matter. And um, so there were budget constraints, but, but when I, but I, I'm very specific about what it is that I want and need, and so I was able to sit down and say, my priority here is to have the best possible actors in each of these roles and give them the time that it's going to take to explore every facet and nuance of what Aaron's writing about. And that's, I can't shoot this movie in 25 days. Some people can shoot movies in 25 days. I can't. I, I, I need the time to kind of go try it this way or try it that way or, or think about it this way. And, and that was to me, that was the production value of it. You know, we're going to have to build sets because we're not going to be able to shoot in Harvard dorms. That doesn't make any sense. And you're certainly not going to be able to do it for 72 days. So I need a 72 day schedule and, and that's the bad news. And then you price it out and the price was $40 million rather than the 25 or whatever they wanted to spend on it and then you haggle and and at the end they said go do it well what you say about you know working with the, the the music stars who know what they're good at and their good angles and so on relates a bit now to uh the things i've heard and read about uh, shooting some of the scenes 
in Social Network and some of your other films probably, where you're doing a lot of takes. And whenever you talk about takes and you say a lot of takes, people kind of, oh, oh my God, you know, 50 takes, 90 takes, and so on. But to go beyond that, what I understand is you were doing those takes to break down the preconceptions that the actors have about the way they might look or the way they might have come off in a scene. And I'm just wondering if you can walk us through that a little bit. What is it really like for you going through dozens of takes and what are you looking for and what are you getting as you go through to take well, 20 and take 50 and take 80? What's, what's the whole process of a day like that where you're doing so many takes? Um, well, again, digitally, you know, w when you when you're shooting digitally, it's not it's not the same thing when you shoot when you shoot with film. You know, you have to break every 11 minutes, and the magazine has to come off, and everybody has to stop what they're doing. You have to find the slate. You have to get the. You know, there's all these things you have to do with digital. You don't have to do that. You just go like, and so sometimes what I will do, especially when you have, I mean, the. The good news about preparation, the good news about people who come in having an idea, you know, Kate Blanchett has a very specific idea about what it is that she wants to do. And once she's sort of presented that to you, then she's willing to go anywhere that you want to ask her. You know what I mean? Then she's willing to go. But, but you kind of have to get through that thing where they go, I'm now prese I'm presenting you with what, I've, what my impression is or what my, and, and you know, m most, big actors who have years and years of experience doing that, that's what they do. They're going to come to present you their thing and they're going to work within the confines of how, you know, the actual location that you're going to be in and, the, and where you want to put the camera and, and what you want the other people to do. But, but they're going to kind of, they've, they have their thing. And 25-year-old um, and actors who've made two movies are going to do the same thing. And my process has always been, that's great, and, and I want that, and I encourage you to do your homework. I encourage you to have a, a, an opinion and a point of view now. I want, also want to take you to a place where you know the room so well that when you go to walk, when you toss your book bag down and turn on your computers and walk across the room and open the refrigerator, mini bar refrigerator and take a bottle of beer out, it looks like you've done it a thousand times. Now, we don't have to do it a thousand times, but we may have to do it 22 times to make it look like you've done it a thousand times. I, uh, to me, it's important that people, the, the characters occupy space, if it's supposed to be something that they're familiar with, that it really looks lived in, worn in, that uh, conversations between two friends or conversations between two twin brothers that is supposed to overlap, they have to get to a point where they not only they can finish each other's sentences, they are finishing each other's sentences and they're the same guy. So you have to, you have to get the person who's playing the over the shoulder who's not the same actor to be able to jump in at the right point where you're supposed to and, and you're watching and, and I'm, always, I'm always watching for you know, first the the technical, like then I'm looking for the believable and then I'm looking for the connection. You know, I'm looking for the thing that you go, well, that, f that was surprising and interesting and weird. I hadn't thought of that. I'm, I'm looking for the mistake that makes it look um, somehow like it, like it, like it just happened, you know? So I want to get beyond, I want, I don't want somebody who, I don't want it to look like you just got the sides and you're just off book and now you're ready to go. I want it to look like you know the space, you know where it is you're going, you're totally comfortable with the, 
you know the teacup and where you're going to put the honey in and how that's going to work i want i want to get beyond that and sometimes that takes a long time you know i mean there's people i mean tilda swinton is you know take three take four she's looks she, like she's done it a thousand times you don't have to do that with certain people but but others you want to get them beyond and i think all you know mark ruffalo i mean mark Th those are you know those are two actors that they don't care if you shoot a thousand takes of them they're like but but they're going to come in having an idea of what it you know bare kind of broad brushstroke idea of what it is they're going to do and then they're just going to jump off a cliff with you so we're in the great opening scene of the social network uh what were you getting in the first few takes and what did you get at the end that was more or more to what you were looking for well, I felt like, I mean, we shot 90, 99 takes of four setups or five setups in that. So they averaged about 25 takes a setup. Oh. The two can the over the shoulders, we shot the two over the shoulders, which is the meat is probably 80% of the coverage that's in the scene. We shot simultaneously, which you just don't do, but we oh. could do it because it was a backlight and it was, it was a half light on one side, a half light on the other side. So we could carve some you know foreground shoulder and shoot over that and and be looking back and we could we could because we had a very simple source we could run two cameras simultaneously i probably shot 50 takes of that because that's the first we started with well we started with the we started with the wide shot the the two the 50 50 we shot two cameras of that and they probably did 15 20 takes and that was just all about, the fr you know, the master was, I knew I wasn't going to be in it very much. It was probably going to be in it like 10, 12% of the scene. Was, but I needed to set a pace. I needed, because in that scene, you're going to see them talking over each other. So you're going to see one of them interrupt the other because they're, you know, it's not an over. So I was just like, get, you know, that last one was really great, guys. You need to take two and a half minutes out of it. You know, it's nine pages in four, four and a half minutes. So it's like. You know, and they got, they, they were like at seven minutes, they were like, whoo, I was like, not even close. <laughs> like, not even close. So we would do that until, until, and, then, and, and again, that was probably 15, 20 takes of that. And, and the first 10, not even worth looking at. And then you get to the, you get to the last 15 or the last 12 or whatever it is, and they're starting to get it, and they're starting really good at the beginning, and little dodgy in the middle, but we know we're going to be in coverage in the middle, and then a great exit, you know, a great exit on this. Okay, we've got three great exits, and we've got the beginning four or five times, and then we have little pieces in the middle, but we know we're going to be in coverage on the middle. So then we go into the overs, put the cameras up for simul, you know, to be able to see both these, and just go start. And, and I would do stuff, you know, just to fuck them up, just so they could, you know, Rooney's like, like, um, really quick, like very facile. And, and I needed her to, I mean, she spends the first kind of third of the scene going, oh, I'm sorry, you said something and I thought that was what I was responding to and now you're on to something else. And I needed her to get, and she got very, she, she had actually worked it out. So she was, she was very um, kind of expert at it this transition, the, the thought process. So I would do stuff where I would just go right in the middle of them talking. I'd go, okay, start again. And all the background actors would like run back to their first position. And you know, everybody's like pouring beer out of one glass into another glass and, and then keep rolling. And they'd go, okay, great. Okay, you guys ready? And they go, yeah, okay, go. And she'd say her first line, everybody'd step in. I'd go, okay, start again. And she'd be like, and then you get that energy of, oh, well, 
I, I thought I knew where this was going. I thought I understood what you were talking about. And maybe it only helps for, you know, four or five lines in it, but you get this sense of, you know, and also, you know, this is a Frank Capra trick. It's an old trick because Frank Capra used to have the thing where he could only print two takes or something. So he had this thing that he would do he, where he would have, keep the camera rolling. He would go back to the beginning and everybody would run. And what it does is that when you get, when actors get adrenalized like that, they talk faster. And they talk faster kind of because they're also thinking about like, is he going to cut? Is he going to cut? Is he going to make me go back to the beginning? And, and they're, and they're, they're thinking of this other thing, so they're not thinking of their next line. They're thinking they're they're in the space thinking about something else. And especially with Sorkinese, you know, I mean, this is a this is a it is its own patois. It's like its own world, and it and you have to. It's in a it's an aggressive um, um, thinking out loud. It's aggressive thinking out loud. That's what it is. It's like somebody going, you know. I mean, we talked to Aaron. It's like, that's what he did. Um, um, uh, you know, what I really want to say here, David, and I'm not really sure I've started and, I've, and I'm talking and I know and I, I'm going to get to it and it's important and you have to hear it because it really means something to me. And I'm running out of breath, but I really want you to know something and I can't remember what it is, but it's something that is, it linked to what you said earlier. It was that thing. I mean, when you talk to Aaron, that's what it's like. And, you're, and you kind of go, uh, let's go back. So that's what we had to get was that that, that sort of explosive um, um, thinking out loud. Well, uh, we haven't even gotten to the all the big films yet, but uh, we're, we don't have a lot let's of time left. It. So, so let's let's open it up a little bit. Uh, okay. And uh, let's ask this, do this here. Yes. This person asked Fincher if he would expand on why he is a champion of digital cinema. I'm a champion of inevitability. I think I'm, I'm all for that and I'm all for it. No, I, 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 I'm not a cha I, I think that there's a lot of things that look shitty about it. And I think you have to be very careful. And I think there's a lot of things that look shitty about film too. You know, and, and I think it's six to one off dozen to the other. Um, I think saying that you're anti-film is like saying you're anti-dinosaur. I'm not an anti-dinosaur. I, I, I think it would be cool to see dinosaurs. <laughs> they're, they're just not around. And that's where film's going. You know, it's like it's, if, and if you don't believe me, just go to Rochester, New York and see what's happening at Kodak. It's like, they're downsizing. They know. Um, so I'm looking at it going, I can either kind of like, you know, stomp my feet and hold my breath and say, I really love what this looks like when it's treated just right. And then I hate everything downstream of it, including exhibition with scratches and fucking gate weave and shit being soft and bad prints being made that are all thin and gray. And, you know, I hate all that stuff about it. And, and so maybe as a recording medium, film is still a viable option. But for me, the way I work, I want, I want to, I don't want dailies, I want hourlies. Do you like the, the red camera system? I do. I mean, I think Jim, you know, we saw the red in its, in its real infancy. It, they, Jim brought it w w to me before we started Benjamin Button and he said, this camera will be ready and it'll be great and don't worry and I'm going to bring it down to New Orleans and I'm going to put it in your hands and you can decide if you want to shoot Viper, if you want to shoot 
And look, Viper was a, it's an ENG camera. It's a joke. It's, it doesn't, it's not what, it's a toy. It's a, it's a, and Red at that time was a toy. But you could see when you met with Jim and you said, here are the things I need you to do. You got to generate time code. He was like, oh, you know, I mean, like, like the Genesis, when you saw that when they presented that thing and they had put a tape machine on, they put a tape machine on top of the camera to make it look like a Panaflex. I was like, I don't think anybody's made a record on a tape machine for 20 years. What are you guys doing moving a tape? It's like, well, Sony is financing half of this camera. It's like, they're financing the stupid half, you know. <laughs> Get rid of the tape machine. Like, um, anyway, so um, I, I think the red, you know, w w it was obvious to see that they were committed to a kind of um, um, Model T digital acquisition device. And it seemed pretty great to be able to flip the switch and go from 4K to 3K to 2K to one, whatever, how many Ks you need this thing will do it. And the issue was always color space. And the first time we saw it, it, it didn't look very good. And then when I saw it before we shot Social Network, you know, I showed it to Jeff Cronenworth, who has a pretty good eye and has seen a lot. And he went in and he, we sat in a, th we sat in a th theater with a screen about this big and saw all of, our, all of our tests. And he was just like, fuck, this looks great. And I said, okay, so. Yeah, it's right here. This person wondered how he chooses his projects. How do I, how do you pick them? Um, I don't know. You kind of, um, you know, I get to work with a lot of different people through commercials. You know, I kind of, I do commercials between movies, not because I um, enjoy them, but um, because you get to play and you get to get a, you know, get to go into new sandbox and, and it's for a, for a short period of time and you get to work with different people. And so you kind of go, well, maybe this person would be right for this, or maybe this person would bring something, you know, I remember with, uh, Darius Kanji and on, on, we'd done this Nike commercial. I'd seen something they'd done for Jean-Baptiste Mondino and, uh, a condom commercial that I thought was awesome. And so I said, that's, I'm doing this, I have to do this Nike women's fitness thing. And I didn't want to get I didn't want to get somebody who was going to do, didn't want it to look like a Bally's ad. You know, wanted it, didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be kind of nasty. And so I saw this condom commercial, so I called Darius and I said, you know, would you shoot this? And he came in and he did this really kind of tough and, and, and I liked it. And it was, it was um, great and it was, he obviously had a great eye and, and a, an amazing sense of light. And then when, and he, you know, mostly was famous for doing perfume commercials. It was like perfume commercial, perfume commercial, perfume condom commercial, perfume commercial. <laughs> and so, um, and so I had hired him out of, for the 1% of the stuff that he was doing. And the rest of it was, you know, his perfume work. And, and, and so then when I brought his name up for, um, I'd been turned down by two people to shoot seven. And I thought, you know, what about Darius? And, and, and so I took his reel and I'm, and I showed it to the head of production at New Line. They were like, well, it's a serial killer movie. Why do you want a guy who shoots perfume commercials? You know, that makes no sense. I was like, but maybe that's kind of what would be cool about it is like he's got this very painterly kind of beautiful, what if we do that and make it really, and he's also got this condom commercial, you should see. <laughs> and uh, so somewhere in the middle was, the, was, was what we ended up. So I do it that way. I kind of like, it's horses for courses. You kind of go, 
will this person bring something to it that I that I um, can use, you know? I hear. This person wondered how accessibility in new media will influence the next generation of filmmakers. Well, this should be better, right? Well, pressure's on. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, you kind of go, um, I think it's interesting to watch that, you know, you can't really, I mean, the commercial, the bridge from commercials to movies is sort of burned and, and, and um, music videos are sort of dead and, 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 and yet, and everybody kind of goes, oh, well, there's no, there's no way to, but you kind of go, well, you can make movies so much cheaper. You can make movies so much more. I mean, ev somebody in this, uh, uh, how many people in this um, room have Final Cut Pro? Yeah, okay. So what's the excuse? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, so if you can get your stuff, you can get, you can post your, your reel on YouTube, you can go out. I mean, I can't tell you how many, you know, I get sent like a clip, like w once a week, I get an agent calling me going, well, I'd like you to see, and it's like some robot walking through downtown LA. And it's like, what do you think? You know, it's like, it's great. You know, well, you know, can he direct features? It's like, I don't know, he can direct robots walking through downtown LA. But, but and, and I'm sure Paramount would like to meet him. Um, but, but, but I don't know. I mean, it's like there's, you know, these are, these are people doing stuff in their, in their, you know, basements who are, who are, you know, have, you know, suddenly this entire movie industry machine, like, rushing to find out, find a project for them. So, um, you know, it's not agents schlepping Paul Abdul videos around anymore, but, the, but now you've got, you know, and now the agents don't even have to do anything. It's like, here's a link, you know, it's like, I don't even have to put a tape in. So I, I think there are plenty of opportunities to, to, to do your, whatever you want to do in a small way. And, and probably that's, probably that will inform the kinds of, um, the kinds of films as, as it relates to film theory and, and, and the democratization of libraries and the ability to have access to, to learn from anything. Certainly, you know, I always looked at DVDs as, here's an opportunity to leave kind of a record of, this is what we were trying to do. If we, if we did it, great, and if we didn't, shame on us, but here's what we were, here's what we were attempting, so that hopefully that, that stuff could survive to humiliate us in the future. What? Oh, okay. Go ahead. In the middle? Yes. Oh. Uh, or wherever. Okay, right. jump in. This person brought up Fincher's next project, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and they wondered how he approaches something that's a remake as opposed to his other films. Um, I mean, you're making a, you're making a movie, look, Here's the thing. I, I don't need to make any more serial killer movies. I really don't. I mean, and I know that. Um, and I, what I liked about this was Michael Linton and Amy Pascal came to me and said, we think that there's the possibility of adult franchise. We believe that you can make a movie for adults that will that will be successful, that will be a, be a commercial endeavor, and we think that this material hasn't been drilled as deep as it can be. 
And I said, great. I read the thing and I came back to him and I said, now you know that telling me to go deep with material like this is like a red flag in front of a bull. Are you prepared? Because I've been through this before on Fight Club where everybody said, we want you to go, we want you to do what you do. And for a year and a half on the cocktail circuit in fucking Pacific Palisades, people were like, oh my God, it's so nasty. What they're doing over there is so bad. And then of course they see it and when it's all cut together a year later and they go, how could you? How could you? Um, so my intention is to do, is to, to, you know, I don't know about the, I can't address the originality issue. I mean, when you're talking about making a movie from a book, even if it's already been made into a movie in another language, um, I think that there, you know, I see myself first and foremost as an interpreter of the text to the, to the, to the, not the image, because that's too easy, to the, you know, directors don't make pictures. Directors make things that you are supposed to get an emotional hit off of. You're supposed to feel something. So it's not, um, so my interpretation is, is uh, um, it's like a, it's behavior, it's color, it's the quality of the light, it's the, it's the setting, it's the speed at which it moves, it's all of these things go to make a visceral response. It's not just about, so I look at it and I go, I don't know, the, I mean, I think you could give five different people the same script and end up with five different movies. You know, not, and, and our script is way different from, from uh, uh, the Swedish movie. So, you know, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, in a case like this, where there's so much uh, advanced knowledge of it, wh how do you divide it up between uh, fulfilling the expectations of the fans of this enormously popular franchise versus giving them something new um, that they may not expect? Well, again, uh, it's you, for the phenomenon that the book is, you're, you're still talking about a book that sold 35, 40 million copies or something. It's not... I mean, or the three books have sold that. That's there's no flies on that. That's a that's but that's that's not. I mean, even if you get all of the, I mean, you, you're not going to get everybody who bought the book to go and see the movie. You're not going to. So it's not like I don't really believe in this whole built-in thing. I think it has to like stand on its own two feet. But I I kind of feel like. I don't know. Could be making a big mistake. <laughs> I don't know. Call my agent. Was was any thought given to to uh, taking it out of Sweden and doing it anywhere else? Yeah. Or was, yeah. No, but um, but that's not. What, and and Linton, when he explained it to me, because he's. It's not just the the Stieg Larsson. It's not just the the his particular backstory and and talking about Swedish. The, you know, socialism built on fascism or, you know, it's not just that, but it's also, you know, you, you kind of ask yourself, you can't make, you can't make this movie in Seattle. It's not like, you know, well, we all know those, those wealthy, those wealthy um, Vanger families from Seattle. And it's like, it is, let's put it this way. There's a thing, there's kind of a thing in Swedish noir is 
how you know it's 30 days a night and and four feet of snow and and you can't really do that it can't just take place in a place where it's a little rainy and your internet's out you know it's kind of like you're cut off from the world you know it, it it that's kind of part of the whole that's what it that's part of what swedish noir is well uh i was told you have to get on a plane and go back to Sweden okay. this minute. Yeah, I and do. So I'm telling you, if you feel like going any longer, that's fine with me. But I don't want to talk about Sweden. It's noon. No, no, no. But okay. uh, all right. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.